0: You're listening to the Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: How many threads do you need to weave to tell a story? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a little later, Peter Blauner, former journalist, award-winning novelist, and staff writer for several television programs, stops by to talk about the great Pete Hamill. But first, joining us right now is Bev Wolwack, librarian, Manitouk Laurel Public Library, and she's going to give us some insight about books that will be coming out in September and October. Bev, welcome to the program.
2: Hey, Larry. Thank you.
1: So there's the obvious question first. With COVID-19, how will libraries have to adjust to changing the environment in terms of what you can do with your library?
2: Well, we open very slowly, of course. We still have curbside pickup for people that are not comfortable coming in. We're open from 9 to 5, and anyone that comes in, they're allowed 30 minutes to browse the library. Yeah. In the children's room, only 10 people can be in there at once. We try to keep the other limit down to 25, but it's not like we get 25 people yet. And we have the plexiglass all around. It separates all the computers because the computers have been moved apart. Distance is very important. We're not doing any
1: programming. The East End is really special. For people listening outside of the metropolitan area, you're on the north fork of the East End. It's not the Hamptons, but over the years you've been out there. How has it changed?
2: It's not as farmy, low-key as it used to be. The summers are not great with all the people that come in. In population and built up, it's increased immensely. Usually during the summer, of course, we get the summer people, which in the past has increased our summer numbers that come in. We give out cards, special cards, just for them to use during the summer so they can take stuff out as long as they're in Mattatech or Laurel. The population increases quite a bit.
1: All right, let's jump in, and I'm gonna tell a quick story because on the list of books that you sent me coming out for September and October, one really stood out, and the book is by a writer named Durf Backdorf, and the title is Kent State, four dead in Ohio. In, in the spring of 1970, I was a student at Bowling Green State University. The whole state blew up when that happened in Kent State. And there's a very famous, almost iconic picture of Jeffrey Miller from Plainview, Long Island, New York on the ground after national, he was shot by the National Guard. The National Guard was called out by Governor Rhodes, the governor of Ohio at that time. Ohio was a very conservative state. And leaning over him and kneeling over him was a runaway, teenage runaway young lady. And since then, every time I hear Wooden Chips, he Stills, Nash, I don't think Young was part of that, I go right back to the spring of 1970. But I see this book that's coming out in September. What can you tell us about it? It talks about what
2: happened that day, about the students, um, the 67 shots that were fired. The author was 10 years old when this happened. He was saw the gunman. He saw well. He saw the guardsman. He was there, and how it affected him. And and he grew up to be a journalist. But the effect that had on his life at that time made quite a difference in how he made choices. It's the 50th anniversary of Kent State.
1: All right. I threw you a little bit of a curveball. Let's go to some of your listed, Let's pick out some books that you're going to be spotlighting and highlighting. For releases in September.
2: Well, we've got The Quiet Americans, which is a nonfiction book that's coming coming out in September. It's about their exploits after World War II. And like I said, it's nonfiction. It talks about the four, how their backgrounds are all different, but they're all in Germany at this time. Of course, keep an eye on Russia too. The four of them, one was a football star, one is a Jew, a German Jew and one is a wealthy southerner and the other one is just he's a s executive from a company but it sounds really fascinating to me the gentleman who wrote the book wrote lawrence in arabia and that was a bestseller from what i understand
1: certain names sell books no matter what the title of the book is i'm not a big fan of this person i haven't read his books but he's extremely popular and that's Deepak Chopra. What can you tell us about him? He has a huge following.
2: I think it's because of what his books represent. They're supposed to bring you peace and tranquility. I'm sure you've seen him interviewed. Sometimes I worry he's going to fall asleep.
1: You know, one of the great tragedies is the disappearance of independent bookstores, as well as Borders books has disappeared. I imagine Barnes and Noble is kind of coalesced around bigger stores. And, but the beauty of an independent bookstore, in my mind, is you can go in and ask for a recommendation. When people come to you to the library, they ask you for recommendations.
2: Yeah, that's what I do. I'm a reader's advisor. I order everything for the library except nonfiction and DVDs and audios. Anyone comes in looking for a book, they send them to me and I talk to them about what they like to read. What did they read last? And I feel reading is very personal, so you have to be careful with your questions.
1: And I, do, I do know, I'm going to cut you off, but I do know that you have a copy of Daniel Silver's new book, and you were part of a presentation with his wife Jamie Kangel, who's also has worked for NBC. What were your impressions about the book and that interview that you witnessed?
2: I thought the inter- interview was very interesting. and. One of the reasons I did it, you had to buy the book, which was to help out independent bookstores. There were a list of about 20 bookstores that you could buy the book from. It was in his, in their kitchen, in their house in Florida. It was very interesting how that was done because it was so informal. And they kidded around a lot with each other. And I've been a big fan of Daniel Silva since his first book,
1: uh, the Unlikely Spy. You know, I've I read every book in the series because of Gabriel Alon. He does something, and I'm going to mention another writer too. He's aging him in, in each book. And we had a conversation actually last night, prior to you joining us today, and I said, the greatest tragedy of all is if Daniel Silva, because he's aging, gives him arthritis in his hands. Because the liter- the Art part of his life is fascinating. He's an art restorer and he paints himself. And I'm saying, if you would really freak out the followers if Gabriel no longer can do what he does in his private life. And I, I compare that to Lee Child, who's, an, who's on the list too, but he's not writing anymore. I believe his brother's writing the Reacher books. Now, Reacher is Reacher all the time. Forget about the movie, because that's not what Reacher looks like in the book. So, one writer, is aging his character, and I find that fascinating. Another writer, forget about Tom Cruise, doesn't age his character at all. What are your thoughts about that?
2: I know they're both in the same genre, but they're two. They're again, they're two different styles of authors and how they write. I think keeping Reacher the way he is and the age he is makes him able to do the things he does best, which you know is the brutality and the beatings and the fights. Gabriel Alon, the way he's been aged is to move up, because he's not the only character that's aged in the book. Everybody is. And he's slowly moving up the ranks. I mean, he's already head of the Mossad.
1: Now, there's another book that captures my attention, because in September and October, there's going to be a lot of books that have political orientations. There are probably going to be too many. But there's one book on the list by H.R. McMaster's called Battlegrounds. And, of course, when he left the Trump administration, he didn't say very much at all. Most of the military people held back and saying anything. And I'm curious about what's going to be in that book. Is he going to be honest? Or it's just another book that's going to be out there for a while, and he's going to get all the major media, he's going to get the broadcast networks. He's going to get Fox. He's going to get CNN. He's going to get MSNBC. But that book really interesting in terms of what's going to be in it.
2: I don't think it's a tell all story. It's about his believing Russia is affecting America and what's happened since the Cold War. He's touch. He touches on that. And he wants the American citizen to stop the bipartisan divide that's happened. I'm not going to say he blames Trump. I have not seen that in the reviews. I think if he did, I think that would be one of the things that opens up the review of his book. But I'm curious the timing of the book. You've got the election in November, and he's coming out with his book in September. And he could have waited till after the election that he's chosen to bring it out there. There again, I'm not sure outside of him thinking the partisan divide is something that is hurting the country, which I would agree with. I don't
1: know if it's going
2: to be something that will empower Trump or not. We'll wait till
1: the tweets start. Last time I was at BEA, when they had BEA, I was there and James Patterson walked right by me
2: and a lot of
1: the librarians came up to him thanked him and shook his hand now he's he's a force of nature in terms of publishing because he writes his own books he writes with other people he lets people ghostwrite write books he turns them out constantly some people love him if you want a quick read he has very fast quick chapters so it's easy to get through the book and and a couple of the books have been made into i think pretty decent movies What are your thoughts about James uh, Patterson, not just as a reader, but as a librarian?
2: He has a lot of books come out a month, but he not only does what you just talked about, he he has a young adult series. He has started writing for elementary children. He is writing for almost every age group. I know Andrew Gross was one of his co-authors. I think Patterson does a lot for libraries and independent bookstores. I think Some of the independent bookstores, without his help, might not still be here. I do recommend his books. His style has changed over all the years that he's written. He still has a lot of readers that, just like you said, they just want an easy book to read, so books would be, they're good weekend
1: books. They're not taxing, but they're entertaining. I want to move over to October, and I'm going to tell you why. One of the writers I sat down with over the years was Ian Rankin. Ian Rankin told me, if you want to know about a country, a region, a locality, read crime fiction. He has a new a book coming out. I think it's a song for the dark times. Is that correct? And that's coming out in October. Yes, a song for the dark times. First of all, sitting down with a foreign writer is fascinating because of the accents. So that's a treat for me anyway. But he's a, he's a very, very excellent. He's almost like a literary writer. I mean, Rebus is his reoccurring character who does go through a lot of travails from, from book to book to book. So that I also like that, how he handles his main characters.
2: I like that it's in Scotland. I mean, there, there are Scottish writers, but not as many as your Irish, your English, and your Scandinavians are starting to really come out hot and heavy. Yeah. I like his character, Rebus. I like the way he writes and mainly like his character i like the way he investigates
1: and how he does it well it's also it's also a travel log. so he's taking you to a place you don't understand some of the things are universal but i i always i always tell people when i talk to them uh, you can use the book as almost like a time machine to take you someplace so you can't physically go the books take us physically when we can't go or somehow we may get fascinated about what we're reading, and then we want to go and see the places that we're reading about. So it has dual purposes. Um, we've got probably maybe five or six minutes left. I love to laugh. Make me laugh. One, it's therapeutic, and it takes your mind off more serious things in time, although comedy is very serious. It really is. It's are really. I think comedians are addressing social issues, but they're making us laugh while they raise these relevant things that we have to think about. This is a name many people would not remember. Fanny Flagg was a comedian. She's got a new book out. She's from the South. What yeah. can you tell us about Fanny Flagg?
2: I think she's a fantastic author. Even before Fried Green Tomatoes, I was a big fan of hers because when I read her books, I can hear her reading the book to me. Because like you said, she was a comedian. You got to know her on TV before she started doing this. And this new one that's coming out, I'm looking forward to, because we go back to Whistle Stop and we revisit all that. And she talks about the changes that have gone on since we were first there to where we are now. But her... Her humor comes through when I read Welcome to the World, Baby Girl. You can't help but chuckle at what goes on. It's down south, and there's a lot of humor. So between that one and John and Go With John Cleese, his book should be very interesting. I'm looking forward to that. But Fanny Flagg is unique in the way she writes. And she reaches people that didn't know that she was a comedian.
1: I'm Gary Davidson, this is the podcast, Artful Periscope, after the break. Peter Blahn is going to join us to talk about Pete Hamill. I'm going to give you two other names, big names. John Grisham and Alice Hoffman both have books coming out in October. You want to talk about them?
2: John Grisham, this is the third one, In his first book was A Time to Kill which became a fantastic movie, and that was a fantastic book. And then he did a follow-up to that Sycamore Road, but he didn't do it till many, like almost 20 years later. This is a continuation of that series, so to speak. He's back with Jack Brigard, the lawyer, and I loved A Time to Kill. And it's funny, because *The Time to Kill didn't become well-known or a bestseller till after the firm, the firm is what grabbed people. And then when I would say, cause I read the time to kill when it came out, when I'd say, go back and read a time to kill, you want to read a, a really gripping story. I just yeah. want to stop
1: you for a second, because this is something I think is really important for readers. When I sit down with an audience, or I do an interview with, let's say, Nelson DeMille or some of the big writers, or, well, unknown writers. I go back to the first book that they ever wrote, if I could find it. Because yeah. I want to see where they started and where they are now, and I find that interesting. They may become a better writer, but you see the seeds of who they are in the first books, and it gives me a little bit of insight in terms of what I try to do in terms of listening, information during interviews. I th- and I also, I'll, when I go in the library to read for pleasure and I find a book that I like, I'm just in the library. I'll go back to the first book and see where they started. For me, that's my education for myself.
2: We did that, something along those lines with my book discussion. I had them read Jodi Picot, one of her very first books. Yeah. And then read one of her current books. What surprised me is how many people... Said if they had read the first book, they would never have continued reading her. So that tells you how much her style
1: changed over the years. All right, we got two minutes left. Let's just touch upon Alice Hoffman, if you don't mind.
2: This is her book coming out as the prequel to Practical Magic, which was a big hit. And there again, that one was a, was a really good movie too. And so this is where we basically find out why they became the witches they become. It's their early life. And I I find it interesting after so many years, she's going back to the prequel to Practical Magic when Practical Magic has been around so long. But she's very unique because of her genre changes, the way she writes changes, depending on what type of book she has decided to write
1: well in a sense because i know writers sometimes use diff- different names for different style of books that's a unique way to challenge yourself it's easy to get into a rhythm and write the same book over and over again in a sense mm-hmm. but the real challenge in terms of growth for me my opinion challenge yourself by writing something different I, and a few times i've sat down with famous writers i asked them if you can write a book under a different name, what would you write? And that's the one time that there's dead air because they have to think. And sometimes they get a good answer and sometimes they have no answer. Because honestly, if you're a big writer, your publisher wants you to keep doing what you do to sell the books. That's the business side people don't talk much about. But I think if you could sit down with a different name and just write anything you want to write, why not just do it? That's your unique challenge.
2: And you think of all authors who have done that. You and I talked about Ed McBain and Evan Hunter. Right. Entirely two different styles of writing. You wouldn't even know it was the same author. And you've you've got Nora, Nora Roberts, who has like four different aliases that she uses. And they're all different
1: genres. I think that frees you up. Unfortunately, um, we're out of time, but Bev, you have an open invitation. My guest is Bev Lowack, She's terrific. She's a librarian at Mattatuck Laurel Public Library, and they do a great event. So, Bev, if you want to find out more about the library, give us some information for your website or some contact information.
2: Okay. The website, org. Go there. It gives you... All the information of what's going on. We're on Facebook.
1: I thank you for opening up for my listeners. After the break, we touch upon the life of Peter Hamill, the great writer coming back to the podcast once again, and that's Peter Blouner. I'm Larry Davidson. You're listening to the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be back after the break.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, had a, a program called a Thousand Points of Life. And why do I mention that? Because when Donald Trump did his speech for inauguration, some people called it American Carnage Speech. I'd like to go back to H.W. Bush and A Thousand Points of Light. And I'm going to mention three people who should be honored in that way. And all three of them recently passed away. And I sat down with two of them, which was an honor for me for various interviews. Carl Reiner, John Lewis, and Pete Hamill. And I i don't know how I got this. I have New York Magazine from April 28th 1980 and the cover story was Sinatra the legend lives by Pete Hamill the great Pete Hamill and this is what he wrote so stay with me for a second in the wee small hours one rainy evening in the winter of 1974 I was home alone when the telephone rang I picked up the receiver looking out at the wet street I heard one of the most familiar voices of the century. It was Frank Sinatra. Quote, what are you doing? Reading a book, I said. Read it tomorrow. Where at Julie's. come on over? And he wrote that um, for an article in 1980. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to, uh, I believe, 2005, 2006. I was invited to an event for release of a series of, I guess, essays. Of the, and it's a beautiful little book called Metropolitan Found, celebrating New York is Brook Country, the 25th anniversary collection. And stay with me for a second, because I want to find this passage. And this passage is on page 86. And what he wrote was reading for the first time. And all of us remember reading stuff for the first time and how it resonated with us. I need to have wrote this. I usually alternate between a classic and a new work. Carl I our Jonathan Swift, can be read, absorbed, embraced between Tom Jones and Treasure Island. So can Elmer Leonard and Peter Blowner, Alan Furst, Kevin Baker, Stephen King, and the Brooklyn works of my brother, Dennis Hamill. Joining the conversation now is the affirmation, Peter Blanner. So the first question I'm going to ask you, and by the way, some information about Peter, that we mentioned early on the podcast. Former journalist, award-winning novelist, and staff writer for several television shows. So when Peter, when you heard about the death of Peter Hamill, what was your initial reaction?
3: Well, first off, Larry, thank you for reading that. I, I had never heard that passage uh, before. I just read it. And um, I reflected both on uh, Peter, Pete's role uh, as a, a great newspaper man and a great writer uh, since pretty much 1960. And I reflected on what he's meant in my own life. Uh, You mentioned that Sinatra piece from 1980, which I remember very, very vividly, because I started working for him two months after that piece ran, and I worked as his assistant over the summer of 1980. I was barely out of my teens then. And Lou Reed has uh, a line in a song he wrote about the poet Delmer Schwartz, where he says, he was the first great man that I ever knew and Pete Hamill was the first great man that I ever knew.
1: I sat down with him uh, for the first time in 1978 for Why Sinatra Matters. He was very special, and and I'm gonna share a couple of personal stories if you don't mind, Peter Blaner. When he prepared to come into the studio, we're standing outside with my crew, and he was a very big boxing fan. And he was coming to talk about, I don't know, it was The Gift of Forever, one of the other books that he wrote that we sat down and discussed. And he just started talking about Mike Tyson and everybody standing around him. And my crew was from the very young to truly senior citizens. And he just starts talking about Tyson and the experience with Tyson. And he was a quintessential storyteller. And the second thing I remember, after the interview was over and everybody had left, and I went to leave the building where the studio was. And one of the crew members was a veteran of the Korean War. And Pete just got outside and smoked a cigarette. Before he came in, he smoked a cigarette. And after he left, he smoked a cigarette. He was a cigarette smoker. He spent another half hour talking to this gentleman. Didn't have to. He could have got in the limo and went back, to, went back home. That's Pete Hamill. Yeah. That's the Pete Hamill that I love to this day. That's why it was an honor for me, not for what he wrote, but who he was as a human being and my brief time and my interaction with him. So you also got to share some time with him. So that's why I invited you on a short notice to come talk about him. So what I'm going to ask you is the the book was called Why Sinatra Matters. Why did and does Pete Hamill matter?
3: People I can just share my personal perspective and experience. I grew up in New York City and really became a reader in the 1970s. And I was first attracted to the crime fiction written by Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler at that time. But at almost the exact same time, and maybe actually even a little bit earlier, the two prose stylists who left the deepest impression on me, were the ones I read in the newspaper every single day. Uh, one was a man named Jimmy Breslin, and the other, who used to alternate column days with, with Breslin, was Pete Hamill. And I became very aware as I read those columns that would appear two or three times a week, that there was a particular approach to humanity uh, that was infused in his writing but also to the way he chose his words. He he would write about working class life in the city. He would write about decency or the lack of decency in our political class. And he would write about how those decisions affected the man and the woman on the street. But also he would occasionally branch off into writing about books and literature and Something that's very much been lost in contemporary conversation and contemporary culture is that there's no shame in connecting those two things. There is no shame in being an intellectual. There's there's pride and accomplishment. He he did not go to college, uh, and he went to Regis briefly, but did not graduate there, which is really one of the hardest high schools in New York City. So there's no shame in that at all, but I remember reading a column that he wrote when I was 14 years old about James Joyce and talking about how the blank space on the page was as important as the words that he chose, and that cut a channel in my mind, uh, and that that, uh, still exists in that day. Right, I'm going to just interject something, if you don't mind.
1: Um, no. Did you watch the HBO documentary about Breslin and Hamon if you did, what did you think about it?
3: Um, I thought it was quite good. I thought, um, in particular, the uh, actor, Michael Rispoli, who read some of Breslin's columns, did such a wonderful job in approximating his cadence, which was very, very distinctive, that I had to stop and remind myself sometimes that it actually wasn't. Reslin himself. My children, uh, who are in their 20s, both uh, boys, watched it as well. And they both recognized the value in it, but also recognized that it was about a world that no longer quite exists. Uh, That uh, world of uh, New York newspapers being something that really have have significance uh, to people who are outside that world. Anyway, but, but also what I was uh, trying to get to is um, I had the occasion to come and work for Pete when I was just out of my teens as his assistant. And I remember when he first came around the corner, it was at New York Magazine, and um, I had put on a jacket and tie because I was very nervous about meeting this famous writer, and he was just wearing jeans and a polo shirt. And he said, come on kid, let's go get lunch. And within 40 minutes of that lunch, he taught me the lessons that I carry to this day as, a, as a, someone who writes for a living. Uh, and he taught me three things. And the, and the first I think is probably the most significant for different kinds of writing. Number one, if you have an experience and you think there's any chance that you'll ever write about this experience, you should write down every aspect of it within 24 hours. If you do not, the detail that will prove to be essential and crucial will fade from your mind because you won't know what that detail is when you're too close to the experience. Just get it all down on paper. And he quoted Picasso as saying, you pretty it up later. That's, that's proven to be very important. The second one, and this is important both as a journalist and it's proved important in doing research for novels, which is if you're talking to somebody and a question occurs to you and it makes you uncomfortable to think about asking that question, then you must ask that question. It may be the last question that you ask, but, but you must get it out there or else you're not doing your job. And um, my experience is more often than not, that leads to a different conversation and the conversation that the person you were talking to actually wanted to have all along. And the third thing that he said, and I'm paraphrasing, was in order to become a better writer, you always strive to become a better reader. And it's great to stay out all night at a bar talking to a cop, but then stay home the next night and read Tolstoy because there's no way you're gonna get better if you don't keep reading better. Um, And and what you said before about the way he treated people, that was just as important as his writing, which was at at a consistently high quality for his entire career. I knew him to never manage up. In other words, he always treated the people below him with respect and dignity and as if their opinion mattered as much as the top editor on the masthead.
1: You said something really interesting that stayed in your mind, and I had the honor of sitting down with John Steinbeck's son, Thomas Steinbeck. And I said in the interview, I never heard your father's voice what did he sound like? I still remember my father's voice because I hated getting on the phone with him because he was difficult to deal with. And I almost trembled when he got on the phone because he was about to chastise me every single time. And those certain voices stay with me. I think of Leonard Cohen, the singer. I love his voice. And I always used to listen to Don Imus when Pete was on. I can still hear Don Imus' voice, and I can still hear... Hamill's voice—it's always going to stay with me. And I think we touched upon that, but that's another part of his legacy. He had a, he had a great mahogany his voice. He had a great
3: mahogany voice. It was wonderful, um, and and the sonic quality uh, that he had, both in his way of speaking, was also important in the cadence of his writing. I remember that summer he um, got an assignment from a magazine write a piece about jealousy and he he didn't want to do it but he said well listen i have the assignment i said yes so i'm gonna do it so he went into the other room and he he, we he was working from home uh in brooklyn at the time and i was uh uh, there and he used a manual typewriter this was 1980s and no one was using computers and actually uh, selectric typewriters uh, were not standard either and I listened to the rhythm of his typing in the other room. And it sounded like Sugar Ray Robinson hitting the speed bag. It was so consistent and forceful. Later on, he told me it was actually the rhythm of Gene Krupa's song, Lionese Potatoes and Some Pork Chops, that he heard in his head over and over and over again. And at the end of the 40-minute period, I heard the rip, of the paper being taken out of the typewriter. And he said, hey, Blowner, come in and look at this. And he handed me the pages that he had written, as if I was someone whose opinion mattered. And I I was was just a dumb kid from Manhattan. And to this day, I can remember some of the sentences that I read on that tattered piece of paper. Um, And they were really piercing. And I handed it back to him, and I said, this is wonderful. He said, thank you very much. I don't think it's good enough. And he didn't publish it. But that's how good he was, that he could turn out prose, that calibrated, that balanced, that memorable, and then say, it doesn't meet the standard that I've set for myself.
1: We do know he's working. he was working on his uh, latest novel. I think it was going to be about Brooklyn. Yeah. And the question I'll pose to you should somebody finish it, if somebody does, could it be you?
3: Uh, no, uh, abso- absolutely not. His brother Dennis, who was a good friend of mine, is an excellent, excellent writer. I don't know if Dennis has the time or the inclination and to do it. Dennis is uh, very streetwise, very literate, very, very talented. If anybody uh, should do it, it, it could be Dennis or uh, one of the other wonderful members of his family. Was in-
1: I'll follow up. Based on why Sinatra matters, I told Pete this, sitting down in a TV studio. You're a gift to literature. Somebody should write your bio. And I'm not sure if he said, "Well, maybe one of my kids will do that," but I think somebody needs to write his story. Besides, finish up his novel. He's an iconic figure in the world of literature. We we found that and just the way he wrote, writes so his style. I think somebody's going to write the book about his life because. Patrick Fenton is a friend of mine. He's a playwright, former court officer. Grew up in Windsor Terrace, that same area, in New Pete. And he told me Peter Hamill was a genuine tough guy. Yeah. He didn't take crap from anybody. That was part of who he was as well as the human in him and, and kind of respecting everybody, whether it's teens and Queens or the guy in the street.
3: He didn't kiss up to anybody. Uh, when I first started working for him, it was when he was working for New York Magazine. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, he had just been fired from the Daily News as a comms. And the reason why he was fired, as I remember it, is that he was writing about the greed of the oil companies. And he was told very specifically by management, if you keep doing that, you're, you're going to get fired. So, of course, he kept turning them out and because he wasn't going to like uh, back down from that. But I'll give you the flip side of that story that a friend of mine shared the other day that he ran into Pete at a parade. I think actually it was a political protest during Operation Desert Storm. And my friend was not writing a particularly big story. He was just there to do some research to write a photo caption. He wrote the caption and it appeared in a magazine. And several days later, his phone rang. And it was Pete saying, Hey, I think you really did a good job on that photo caption. (laughs) There's no reason for him to do that. There was a wonderful tribute uh, to Pete at NYU uh, in 2018, near the end of 2018. Um, and, And a group of writers got up on stage and paid tribute to him, talked about what his writing had meant to them. And some of them were, uh, quite well known. Um, uh, There was Jim Dwyer, who's a wonderful writer for the New York Times, Dan Barry, uh, who's a columnist for there, but also some diversity. Uh, Peggy Noonan was on the panel, James McBride, who who wrote The Color of Water and who's a great uh, African-American writer. Uh, Pete was up there, but then a friend of mine, Joanna Malloy, was up there as well. And Joanna. was well-known for writing a column with her husband, George Rush, in the Daily News. It was was called Rush Malloy at the time. But Joanna told the story many, many years before that she found herself trying to learn the trade as a a writer in a small town. I think it was in South Dakota. I think that was it. It was such a small town, she said that uh, there was only one movie theater, and two months after she got there, it was still playing the Apple Dumpling Gang, the Disney movie. It, it didn't even change the movie. And she wrote Pete the letter, and she didn't know him at all. She just wrote him a letter saying, what am I doing here? I don't know where my career is going. I don't know what, what I'm going to do with my life. And she was very young, and he wrote back to her and said, show me what you're writing. Just send it to me. And she did, and, and they had a correspondence. And he encouraged her, just a voice from the wilderness, that that's who he was.
1: I'm um, Larry Davidson, this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is Peter Blanner, and we're sharing memories about the great Pete Hamill. In my preparation for this episode of the podcast, I went and listened to two of Terry Gross's interviews with Pete Hamill. One was about uh, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, because Pete was there. And he said something really interesting that he was one of the people that wrestled sirhan sirhan to the ground and got the gun below because as the gun was dropping down, not only did was Bobby Kennedy shot, two of the people were shot in the lake as the gun went down. And he said, immediately after that, I switched gears. I became the journalist and I was started reporting the scene. Yeah. That being there, being a witness to history, and how he dealt with that. What are your thoughts about that in terms of what do you know about Pete?
3: Well, that's the part of uh, the score that you, after that much time, you learn to uh, uh, step back and be a professional and keep your head. And uh, again, that goes back to what he said to me about, if you're going to write about it, write down every single detail uh, about it at the time it happens. And, I would also urge your listeners to try to seek out the story that he wrote. And I believe he actually wrote about for the village voice. I think that's who he was uh, writing for at the time about what happened afterwards, because it was written, written very, very quickly afterwards, but it really stands up as a wonderful piece of writing uh, as well. Um, RFK, I I know was very meaningful uh, to him. But also, as he said in the documentary that you mentioned earlier, it was a lesson and a cautionary lesson about getting too close to the people who you write about uh, and uh, about becoming friends with the people uh, that you write about. It's it's necessary as a journalist to have a little bit of distance in order to be truly honest.
1: Uh, two people referred to books that still to this day they read and think about. One snows in August, but the other one also was on the Terry Gross interview. And quite honestly, Fresh Air, she's one of the gold standards in terms of interviewing. I know she has a big staff, but if you want to hear a high-quality radio program, podcast, and a gifted interviewer, check out Terry Gross. I listen to her when I'm working out. I'm an admirer and a fan of what she does. She talked about A Drinking Life with Pete's book, about what he went through and about the book. And I found that fascinating, because Pete was very honest about his life, and that book reflects it. But he also talks about, I don't know if he used to go there as a journalist, as they were in The Lion's Head in Greenwich Village, where a lot of this happened. You want to share some thoughts about that book, what you think about it?
3: Well, yes, because um, it's a wonderful book, and I think that may be his best book. Um, But also, it's not just for people who deal with alcoholism or have dealt with alcoholism in their lives. Um, It it certainly is that, but it's also a wonderful memoir about growing up in Brooklyn and about how the child becomes a man or or, or the child becomes an adult because I I don't think there's any reason for women readers to feel excluded uh, from this experience. It really goes to formation of character and and he, he tells some wonderful stories about that, and I've ended up living in the neighborhood where that book takes place, very close to where Pete grew up. And one one of the wonderful um, circles in my life is the library that he talks about on Sixth Avenue between Eighth Street and 9th Street in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Is one of the libraries where I used to take my own children uh, when they were young, and, and frankly. It had not been renovated very much. It has since then, at the time I was taking the kids there. uh, I think it probably looked very much the same as it did when Pete went there. And it it was a genteel, shabby place, but also a a wonderful place. Um, And and just my overall feeling about uh, Pete in the end is I'm just really damn glad that I knew him.
1: A last thought, and I'll I'll tell you what. And once again, I thank you for your time. You've been very generous. That it was an education for me to watch the funeral for John Lewis. Yeah. Three living presidents were there. Fourth one sent uh, a statement. So four four living presidents participated in that funeral. I learned a lot about John Lewis's background in Nashville, with the people who spoke about him. It was a lesson in history through the funeral, and I appreciate that greatly. My one regret now is because of COVID-19, Pete Hamill is not gonna get his proper send-off. Because if there was a, a public wake and all the people that loved him like you could come speak, I would stand outside, I would pay to watch this. That's the one thing that I regret that, in my mind, he's not going to get a proper standoff based on who he is and who he was as a human being.
3: Yeah, it's a shame. But I'll tell you, I went to uh, see um, his grave uh, the other day. I was walking home from Brooklyn. And he's buried in a place with uh, Boss Tweed and Leonard Bernstein and so many other great, famous New Yorkers, and that's where he belongs.
1: Peter Blaner, I love you as a person. I love you as a writer. I look forward to our next conversation. You've been always very kind and gracious for me. Some closing thoughts. In a forest fire, especially when it's aspen trees, the dying trees release seeds, drop the seeds literally amongst the burnt trees for rebirth and regeneration. COVID-19, in a sense, is raging. After containment, will there be a renewal and regrowth of the American psyche? We mentioned Frank Sinatra at the beginning of this podcast. Frank Sinatra had a lyric in one of his songs, and he sings, thanking for the bartender for letting him bend an ear. For all of you, my guests, and people that are listening to this podcast, I thank you for letting me and my guests. And New Year. I'm Larry Davidson. Been listening to the Artful Periscope. Till next time, bye bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs, and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.